is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing one of the great foundations of video game history, the Atari 2600. In 1977, video game pioneer Atari released what would become known as the Atari 2600. It wasn't the first home video game console. That honor goes to the Magnavox Odyssey. But it was the one that broke the market wide open and revolutionized how people design, sell, and play video games forever. Adjusted for inflation, the 2600 cost about 850 bucks upon launch, which nowadays will get you a pretty decent mid-range gaming PC. In part because of its high price point, the 2600 didn't catch on right away, but that changed in 1980 when Atari released its first killer app, the official port of Space Invaders, a game so popular at the time that it had caused a nationwide coin shortage in Japan. For the next three years, 2600s landed in living rooms around the world as Atari utterly dominated the home video game console market. Some Atari programmers went off to form their own third-party game shops like Activision, Imagic, and others, which undercut Atari's own game publishing efforts. But their excellent products also made the 2600 hardware that much more indispensable. And for a while, it was all so, so good. But then Atari stumbled. Its official port of Pac-Man sold 10 million copies, but was widely derided, and justifiably so, by fans who were expecting something a lot more faithful to what they were playing in the arcade. And then, at the end of 1982, Atari bet it all on a high-profile adaptation of E.T. the Extraterrestrial that was so hastily thrown together, the end result was what many considered to be the worst video game ever made. And it had saturated its own market as well by overproducing the consoles themselves. For Atari, it was all downhill from there. The video game crash of 1983, which almost tanked the entire industry, can trace its roots in part to Atari's missteps. To cut its losses, Atari buried tens of thousands of unsold cartridges in a landfill, sparking urban legends about just how much damage the E.T. fiasco had really inflicted upon the company. The 2600 was finally discontinued in 1992 after having overstayed its welcome by almost a decade. By then, Atari, which had once ruled the domain it had helped to invent, watched helplessly as the crown passed to an upstart Japanese company called Nintendo, never to return. But Atari's epic fall from grace doesn't erase an astonishing run that produced some of the most memorable and influential video games ever made. The average email footer now contains several times more data than an average 2600 game ever did. But the ingenuity on display by those early efforts to create games that were inventive, imaginative, and challenging, those will never truly fade from, from memory. And nor should they. The Atari 2600 is a staple of Gen X and millennial video game nostalgia. But for those who go back to it, or even those who experience it now for the first time, the 2600 still has the power to remind us why it was such a phenomenon in the first place. The heyday of the 2600 might not have lasted all that long, but it was long enough to change the world, and that counts for a lot. I spent way too many hours to count on the 2600 while I was growing up, and I still go back to it today, which is why I'm so excited to talk about it. With me today is Zorlon Cannon Technician, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. Humanoid and mutant, Tom Hespos. I play on expert difficulty only. And Amphibian Highway Safety Director, Joe Pace. Good evening, everyone. Everybody, welcome. Uh, Tom, I'd like to start with you, and if you give us your moment of truth about, you know, your favorite Atari game and the story attached to it that really makes it a moment of truth for you. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, I have to confess, like, I was the last kid on my block to get the Atari 2600. There was actually a kid on my block who got ColecoVision with the expansion port to play all of the Atari games before I got Atari. And, uh, you know, all right, world's smallest violin, you know, Tom's complaining about when he was a kid, he didn't get this console that he wanted right away. Well, you know, I, I think everybody forgets, though, how much social currency was wrapped up in being able to play yeah. a lot of the classic Atari 2600 games very well. You would go into class you know at school and you know kids would be flipping baseball cards and talking about one of two things they would talk about you know the little league games or they would talk about like how good they were doing with their atari and like mm -hmm. who flipped what cartridge and what who got what high score so like there was a tremendous amount of social currency wrapped up 
in that, especially for people like me who weren't good at sports. So like, you know, I wasn't going to go out and like cream a home run in the little league game. So, you know, I could be good at video games though. My parents finally, you know, for my birthday uh, one year, you know, just knuckled under and, and got me the Atari, but I had the benefit of, you know, being able to feed them like, okay, well, I'm not going to get any of the old lame cartridges. I'll get, you know, like the new ones that are really cool and have like all my friends be my play testers. Like, oh, you bought that game that stunk. I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, I'm going to go get Defender, which, you know, was my moment of truth. I love that game so much. And when like my console showed up, it came with Pac-Man. I, you know, my parents got me Defender and I was so happy to have gotten that game because it was one of the games that like I just couldn't figure out in the arcade. Uh, you know, it's got so many controls in the arcade. Like you have a joystick for going up and down. You have thrust buttons. You have smart bomb. Bot you got hyperspace. But there's all these buttons. And like I, I couldn't figure it out. But, you know, the Atari version, it was not nearly as complex. You just, you know, aimed the spaceship basically where you wanted it to go. It had pretty much the same mechanics, you know, as, as the arcade, but it was a lot simpler to control. Flash forward to just a couple of weeks ago when I was watching this, you know, Netflix documentary called High Score. Yeah, yeah, required viewing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it gives a great history of video games, you know, especially in the arcades. And, you know, it talks about the 2600 for, for some time. They keep flashing back to this expert in Space Invaders, she was like the Space Invaders, like world champ back then. I keep coming back to her for like a lot of commentary along mm. the way, paraphrasing, but she said something to the effect of like, you know, a good game can last 30 seconds. Really expert players can stretch it out into several minutes. The truly exceptional players can play indefinitely. And that's what happened with me with Defender. Like I just figured out the game. I figured out like the mechanics of all, it wasn't all that complicated and I got very quickly to a point where I could, you know, just, just play and play and play. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the thing that was going to end my game was my parents screaming at me to go to bed, not the aliens finally getting the better of me. This was when I figured out what everybody in class was talking about when they said flipping cartridges. I had no idea what the hell they were talking about. Obviously, it was wrapped up in the whole notion of like doing really good at the game, but like I had no idea what flipping it meant until I got to up to 999,999 points in Defender and the score rolled over. And it was like something went off in my head. I'm like, I flipped it. I flipped it. I finally flipped something. So, you know, that ended up being the moment of truth for me where like I could go into school the next day and say, yeah, I flipped the fender yesterday, you know, confidently. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, just, just take in all the social currency that came yeah. with that. That, that was really like my <laughs> moment of truth. I, I loved the 2600. I used to fantasize about it when I didn't have one. And when I did, I was, I just fantasized about collecting all the cartridges <laughs> and, you know, yeah. playing all the games because so many of them were back then were just so good. I found I got a lot more mileage out of an Atari cartridge than I got out of a Nintendo game. Like I put way yeah. more hours into Atari than I put into later games on later consoles. Well, one of the things that you mentioned about like the social currency of being able to play well, there's also the social currency of what games you had, right? And I oh. found that when I was growing up, a lot of the families that I played with, they had, you know, brothers and sisters. So often it was like the family Atari and all the kids were getting cartridges for their birthday. So like a family's collection might be kind of diverse. And in, in the initial days, the parents didn't really know what the heck to buy, right? So they're just sort of shooting in the dark to get their kids different cartridges. And sometimes they get them something really cool like Space Invaders. Sometimes they get them something really lame like Euchre, you know? And... <laughs> <laughs> there's a euchre cartridge there's a base there's a basic math cartridge who paid? there is a basic math cartridge. it was one of the launch the titles cartridge. who bought an atari so they could play basic math i mean wow anyway but the worst the parent ever. <laughs> honestly um you know that that was a marketing scheme to try to sell it as an education oh yeah for sure obviously yeah I mean, yeah but there's yeah. some parents like yeah this is a, actually a home computer no it's not it's it's not what kind of parent is that kind of sucker yeah, uh, yeah, they are out there. They're, they're, yeah. They're, I'm not gonna, yeah. Um, <laughs> but honey, honey, it's, it's no, we'll get it for them. It's educational. Look, we'll get basic math. But, but the, the thing about the social currency though is that part of it was just like having 
a game at your house and people would want to come over to play because it was like your house became the local arcade in a way you know and so there's a lot of that too so like for me it was a matter of being good at the games but it also a matter of just having good games to play and that kind of that kind of mattered but that's an awesome story tom i never flipped the game that's something big <laughs> i think there were games that were easier to do it than others you know defender was certainly i think one of those uh, people did complain about that the gameplay wasn't all that difficult then it becomes an endurance match like you're yeah <laughs> you can put a few right. hours into yeah. rolling up the score on something you know like uh yeah and i'm a marathon <laughs> it was a lot simpler than the arcade version of defender but that's because the arcade version of defender was a freaking you know, Apollo simulator. And that game was complex. There's a lot of stuff going on there, you know? The hardest video game to play I'm ever, still a terrible probably. defender. I will, that and Stargate. I will, I will never be good at defender. Not ever. It, it, it game gives me flashbacks to how bad I am at it. So when I, so this week, Tom, I started, I decided, all right, I'm just going to jump on defender and see what Tom's into. And I was like, oh, this is a lot easier. And I still augured in like two minutes into the game, you know? It's, Give it a few weeks, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned, you mentioned the endurance aspect of a game like that, right? With games from this era in particular, there was no continue mechanism. There was no save mechanism. It was played till the game is finished, like by time or until you screwed up enough and you're dead. And there was definitely like a difficulty progression. And with a lot of games, it's almost like, you know, like when you hear pilots talking about breaking the sound barrier, the closer they get to it, the more turbulence they get, the more turbulence the plane just shaking, shaking, shaking. Then once they break the sound barrier, it's like, boom smooth sailing now i never flipped an atari game like i said but playing games of this type where that difficulty gets so high and this you just get on a, a frequency where you know the game and you just you punch through that and then it's just like it doesn't matter the game's not getting any more difficult but you're just staying good and it's like you will you have now mastered the game you know i have i have a vivid memory of when i was in college playing tetris on a computer and it was the pieces are flying but i've got it I'm in the zone and I've got this thing wired. I could have played for days. Tetris and, like, is the that, king of that. Right? Yeah. Where you can just, you find yourself past that sound barrier. Yeah. And mm -hmm. like, if I'm clean and the pieces are coming, I'm just there. Yeah. And it, it is a weird feeling. <laughs> I, uh, I used to dream of Tetris. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no question. It's yeah. like when you're taking a foreign language and you have your first dream in like Spanish or French or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, like I dream of Tetris. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so now, Tom, when you when you rolled Defender, was that your only time you ever rolled Defender? Oh, no, I did it five times like over the years. Uh, oh, that's what I'm talking about. Even after like I kind of mastered it, like it just still was entertaining for some reason. I was never able yeah. to like really figure that out why it was still so entertaining. And like, I, you know, I had a moment that kind of broke the whole game for me in terms of figuring out the mechanics. Like I was over at my friend Lou's house and he was one of the first kids on my block to get Atari. He mentioned to me that like the little saucers can't shoot on the horizontal he's like they can't shoot straight they can only like shoot at an angle and once i figured out if i was on the same level with them they couldn't yeah. actually hit me it was like flipping a switch and like okay now i know how to play this game and i, I figured it out and you know yeah now I can play forever <laughs> yeah a lot of those games had these vulnerabilities built into them because they can only process so much information at once so like certain things would happen that it wasn't like a, a break in the game it's just they just couldn't program it to shoot straight. It's like what's well, gonna it would have run into its own bullets or something. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Games of this of this vintage had these little things that are the kind of waiting for you to discover and they were like complete game changers. Like once you figure this thing out, I guess it was like the first exploits really. You know, and you figure out this little vulnerability in the game and it, it totally could change how you how you played. It's a characteristic of the eight bit era. I mean everything is ultimately pattern based and yeah. most of these games could be anticipated. Yeah, you know, yeah, Kaboom you know. is going to just keep dropping stuff faster and faster <laughs> in a random pattern. That's an annoying, stupid game that I hate forever. Sorry, Bill. I know we try to be positive. <laughs> Kaboom is the game. Kaboom is the game that it has four stages. Okay, first stage is super easy. Second stage, which is like, okay, I now now I get what's going. Third stage where they're dropping them just in this endless line that's like actually kind of zen, kind of fun. And then fourth, it gets real. And all you do is spin that paddle back and forth until it breaks and the game's over. You can't keep up. Like you're like, <laughs> you just can't. Like, come on, man. I'm not on cocaine right now. I can't keep up with this stupid thing. So. <laughs> I remember my cousin Corey like told me how to play Missile Command one time. And she did the same thing. She flipped a switch in my head. She's like, when you shoot at the missiles, don't sit there and wait for the explosion. 
go to the next one forget yeah. about it and move to the next one and after that i was like huh and i did it and i'm like <laughs> this game's easy <laughs> <laughs> not a problem all right on, on 2600 yeah, yeah. missile yeah. Fair was the first one that we got we got that was that was the one that came with our atari with missile oh, yeah. we played a ton of that and hmm. th- there is though there is a point at which you cannot survive like there is a point in missile yeah. command where it speeds just, up too fast yeah you can't it speeds up and they're like you know there's a hundred of them coming at once <laughs> like, yeah yeah uh, well, it probably would have been grossly irresponsible to create a game for children that suggested you could actually win a nuclear war, you know, so. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but Tom, one last question for you on Defender. So what other games do you recall that were really, I mean, they, maybe they didn't look exactly like what you saw in the arcade, but they worked great on right. their own. They were still fantastic games for the Atari. Just Asteroids definitely came to mind. Are there any others that, that come Missile to mind for you, for you Tom? Um, yeah, Missile Command's definitely one. Uh, but like the, the Atari strength was not doing the ports, you know, it was, it was, no. I think coming up, like the more compelling Atari games that I love were the ones that were just made originally for like, you know, yeah. you know, the usual suspects, but uh, <laughs> I, you know, those are the ones I found like most entertaining in the end. I mean, Defender was a moment of truth because I got good at it, but there were games that I enjoyed a lot more. Yeah. Um, you know, combat was definitely one. Um, I, I, I love that game. I, like I, I can play that game <laughs> forever and ever and it never gets boring. <laughs> oh, God, combat. Combat's so good. I'm all about the biplanes. Sure, yeah. Love them. Oh man. Oh, combat. I, I, I'm not going to get off topic because you know, it's time to move on to Joe's moment of truth, but I'm sure we'll come back to combat. I mean, we can't, you know what? We can't have a podcast about the 2600 and not stop for a second and talk about combat. Okay. Cause it shifts with the, the the, the unit for so long so i guess the question is should we just stop what we're doing and talk about combat now get out of the way and just sure okay great all right so combat greatest game ever podcast is over thanks for coming i appreciate everybody playing we're, night, we're done. Folks. good night folks yeah <laughs> no what i thought was interesting about combat and, and this is true of a lot of the other launch titles with the exception of basic math that they were all these multiplayer head-to-head games like from the beginning atari was seeing this kind of entertainment as an inherently pvp type thing like in combat you, you can't fight against the computer when i was a kid i played the airplane games what i'll do is i would put the joystick underneath the console so it'd just be like pressing on the button the entire time <laughs> and i would just like try to fight against the drone that way for me the best one was tank pong tom i know it's near and dear to your heart as well so great <laughs> so in the tank so you had these little like mazes and either you could either shoot straight and the bullets was dead into the maze or they would just carry them off each little possible surface until they until they hit something or just you know petered out and that was Tank Pong. And it was like the most rage-inducing game maybe ever, ever made. Like, I don't, I don't think anybody has ever... This is genius. I, I also, like, I don't think there's anybody who ever lost a game of Tank Pong and didn't rage quit at some point in time. I mean, I, everybody rage quit that game. Every put more controllers through screens than any... Oh, man. Everybody rage quit Tank Pong at some point in time. If you didn't, you either are lying or you didn't play Tank Pong. Or you won every time, which is astonishing. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, no. It was the first time I ever saw that happen, for sure. Oh, oh. You know, so the, the abuse of the reset switch. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, we're like, that's it. They hit the switch. Oh, come on, man. That was like such an uncool move. Someone just like smacks the switch. Like, dude, man, no. you know, you made, you lost, right? No, I didn't. <laughs> well, you hit the switch. I don't know what to tell you. So. That's an automatic forfeit in my neighborhood. <laughs> that was, for, for me, that was like getting knocked out of Dunce in Foursquare. You hit the reset. It's like, you're at the back of the line, man. Off the console. You got to wait now because you, yeah, it was not cool. Not cool at all. Like flipping over the board game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, this game is finished. <laughs> well, tank Pong, you could get really, really good at. Yeah. That, you know, like, you know, you're bouncing stuff. You're bouncing the bullets off of all these surfaces, like Captain yeah. America hitting, like, you know, a 10 wall oh. shot. You know, it's crazy. You know? <laughs> oh, it's crazy. The thing about Tank Pong is that that really held up for me. I mean, I we used to play that all the time. And I, actually, I played that with my dad somewhat too, uh, which I think is going to bring us to your moment of truth there, Joe. That was the game that came with the machine. So my dad wanted to figure out how to, what this is all about. And he actually really dug Tank Pong, even though he was terrible at it. But everybody flipping out when they got shot, they would just like lose their minds. He would just laugh his head off. He couldn't tell what was happening. A couple of years ago, a good friend of mine and I went to this fantastic place here in Red Bank, New Jersey called Yestercade. And Yestercade is a retro video game arcade. There's many of them like it across the country. If there's one in your location, please go and patronize it. They had all these stand-up arcade games and whatnot, but they had in one corner an old 
2600, like on an old cabinet TV. I mean, like the whole corner was like period. Okay. It was like of the era. I'm like, Oh man, we look at each other and like, well, let's do this. And we just, (laughs) not even a word was, was a word further was exchanged. We just popped in combat and put in tank pond. We knew what we were here for. And we were playing and we were, we went into the final like 15 or 30 seconds of the game where the score is blinking. And it was like one shot wins the game. And, you know, we were so, we were as invested in the outcome of that game as we were in any Street Fighter, any, I mean, anything. I mean, we were like, it was really important that one of us won this game, <laughs> you know? And I was like, here we are 40 years later and the game still has its hooks in us. And I thought that that's just such a cool thing about combat in general. It's just, it's just a, one of the best PVP games ever. It's really, really good stuff. So I don't mean to undercut Joe, because I know that gets very much at the heart of your moment of truth, jokes. I know you're talking about uh, your dad and also another classic arcade game that came to the Atari. So, so take it away. I'd love to hear your, your moment of truth. Yeah, I mean, uh, like everybody else, I vividly remember when the Atari came into our house. It was like, I think, 1980 or 81. I was either five or six. My brother then would have been seven or eight. And we spent a lot of time playing on these. Uh, on these. Missile Command came with it. And I remember we got Donkey Kong. We played a lot of Donkey Kong, played a lot of Pac-Man. And we were of an age where we hadn't gone out to arcades that much. So we didn't compare the Atari version to what the arcade version had been. So for me, when I think of Pac-Man or I think of Frogger, I think about the Atari version. Um, So there was nothing lost in the translation. We had ours on on an old black and white TV. Um, We used the black white switch. (laughs) The, The Atari had a switch that you had to say if it was a color TV or a black and white TV. Bill, you had mentioned the, the cabinet TVs. The Atari was pretty much a cabinet. It had wood panels yeah. on it, <laughs> right, along, along the front. That's how beautiful this thing was. And there were a lot of games I enjoyed a lot more that I played. We loved Venture. We played endlessly. Mm, that was a good one. You know, later, we, we played a lot of Dragon Stomper on the Supercharger system later, um, which really was a groundbreaking RPG. What I remember most and my most sort of, I guess, cherished memory of, of Atari wasn't playing it. It was thinking back to when I was a kid and my dad was working as a police officer and he was working midnights and he was probably 10 years younger, 15 years younger than I am now. And he would get off work and it would be two, three in the morning or whatever. And he would need to unwind. And I can remember on multiple occasions waking up and my brother and I had bunk beds at this time and there'd be a light on in our room and it would be the middle of the night and I would roll over and there's my father in full uniform, sitting on the floor with a beer, playing Frogger. And that was his game of choice. And he would sit there and he had the sound off because he didn't want to wake up the kids. And he was just unwinding from his stressful job by trying to get the, the dumb frog across. And one of, that's one of my lasting memories of, of my father as a, as a young dad was that he would, he would play Frogger. And he actually was very, very good at it. I think because he played, yeah. <laughs> played it all night. And then we, we you know, we played during the day. Dad, how'd you get so good at this game? Oh, I'm just good at it. But, um, I'm just naturally talented. You know, and, and, and I'm just naturally talented. <laughs> and, and the thing about, about Frogger is any, that was not an unstressful game to play, especially as you go up and you're trying to cross traffic and then cross the river and all this other stuff. I think the fact that he played it with the sound off helped because Frogger had the sound of death that I still think of, which is if the frog... <laughs> you know, didn't make it or whatever it had, you know, was this very terminal sound for this poor frog. This very staticky very kind terminal of like, sound. Right? <laughs> and it was just, you know, so I think playing with the sound. The Atari like sounds that. though, when when your character died or your ship got destroyed or whatever, there was always this hideous like fuzzy crunching sound that just like, <laughs> yeah, it was like, so un- unforgiving <laughs> yeah no there was no fooling around and as you said you know there's no save button there's no you know you just when it was done it was done it was an unforgiving platform yeah this is the perfect example by the way of what i was talking about earlier with making sure you get the good cartridges frogger was a good cartridge it was solid it yes. very much resembled what was in the arcade yep yep freeway on the other hand did anybody else get conned freeway was terrible freeway was frogger basically except it was with a chicken and you couldn't move side to side. It was only up and down. Yeah. Up, you got that down. cartridge. You were like, oh, my God, what a ripoff. So, thank yeah, like, thank God I bought Frogger and not yeah, Freeway. Yeah. You know? no, <laughs> no, Frogger was... Some waiting, you know? <laughs> the port of Frogger was essentially the same game. I mean, like, progressed in the same way. They didn't really get, get rid of any of the 
the um the features of it you know there's the mobile snake there's the otter there's you know the, the, alligators. the alligators everything yeah, yeah it was i remember yeah that was a great game that game was was really solid and really quite super good effective job on the music the arcade version you know has the great yeah. music and this had the great music yeah. too yeah you know in your dad's defense joe frogger has that feedback loop dialed in you know when you slot that frog into <laughs> its home especially if you get a female it's it is one of the most satisfying things in gaming you you know your dad i bet was aware of what he was missing with the sound because that sound yeah it's money money <laughs> well, 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 well he surely played it once with the sound oh, sure. on, right so he, he played during the day plenty oh, okay so he knew, you know yeah. he knew the sounds but but he just you know he had young sure, dads he didn't want to wake us up and this might be one of the sweetest moments of truth we've talked about so far because because like i can I can just imagine your dad sitting there, the light of the TV kind of lighting him up. There's just something really endearing about it. One of the things about the 2600 that I thought was really neat is how, like I mentioned before, how like parents didn't know what games to buy. I think a lot of adults didn't know what to make of the system too. Like it wasn't necessarily immediately sequestered as a thing for kids because it was so expensive, right? So there was this period, I think, where parents were trying to figure out, can I play this thing too? And sometimes you had these great things where you actually played with your parents, but you're doing something that was new to both of you. It wasn't like, oh, we're playing ball. So I'm learning this game my dad already knows or whatever. It's like, we're both figuring this thing out together. And that was, that didn't happen all the time, but it was really cool when it did. But I think now I think about my own kids, right? And I think about like when they were younger and I would play Madden on the PlayStation and they would watch me play. Mm -hmm. And then it got to the point where now, like they're playing games that I can't understand what's going on at all. You know, whether they were playing a Minecraft in survival mode and they're like, come on, dad, play. And I play for three seconds and I'm dead and I'm out. And I'm like, I can't function in this environment or whatever else. Or, or other game, you know, Star Wars Battlefront. And they're like, come on, dad. And I'm dead. And they're like, what are you doing? You know, and I just, I can't function in their environment. And I realized now that like the, the whole gaming world is, is passed me by. Like I'm, I'm a 2600 guy in a, you know, PS5 world or whatever you want to say. But I think back to my dad who was like, I get Frogger. And then like when it moved on to other stuff, when it went to moved on to playing on the Commodore or, or on the PlayStation, it, it, he, he had lost sort of interest in it. And, but there was that, like you mentioned, Bill, that, that brief moment in time where it was kind of a shared experience. And, um, and that was pretty cool. Yeah. I don't yeah. think that the simplicity of the 2600 controls can be understated in their value. I mean, one yeah, button, one I, stick. Uh, yeah, and, and even the stick didn't always go in four directions. It made it easy to get into gaming for anybody. And when I was growing up, girls liked games too. It, it wasn't just a boy thing oh. among my friends. Yeah. Well, if you look at a lot of those 2600 games, there's not much gender identity built into the games at all. That, that was like a, that's like, I was largely a later construct. When you start building stories around games, that's when you start getting much more, is it a male or a female protagonist or whatever, but everybody could imagine themselves being in this game and so yeah when i was playing early on like girls in the neighborhood were just as welcome just as fluent in playing atari as anybody else and i'm glad you mentioned that because i hadn't really thought about that before but because like in years after definitely that there became a gatekeeping aspect to the to the whole scene but yeah. just the games themselves were just less attractive but there's this cool time when, <laughs> when it didn't really matter what gender you were the games were equally accessible to you any sense of intimidation that the game would be hard to pick up or figure out or play was mollified by the fact that you had a one stick, one button, you know? My, my final comment sort of on, the, on my story is um, I think what makes it so bittersweet to me now is, you know, thinking back and thinking that, you know, he was this much older guy, obviously, when I was a kid. But now I look back and he's, he's a lot younger than I am now. Right. And, it, and it makes me like really aware of the passage of time and the nostalgia factor just gets like so incredibly dense and heavy thinking about um, you know, that time and the, you know, my relationship with my brother mm -hmm. and my father and time that we spent together. And now with my own kids, it's just, it gets to be really heady stuff. If you, if you allow yourself to get deep in. Well, I think I'd like to, to, to move along to my moment of truth because this one involves a game that is super near and dear to my heart. And that would be adventure. This is a game that was designed for the Atari, right? It, was, it came out, I think, in 1979. So it was before the Atari really broke wide open. At a time when games were very much multiplayer, this was a strictly single-player game. At a time when games had many different variants, it only had three, right? It was a game in which the game world was larger than what the screen could hold. And it was a game that was randomized. It was not the same game every time. Every time you went in there, 
it was possible to have a 30 second long adventure game. It was possible to have a 10 minute long adventure game. You just couldn't really control it. And the, the point of the game, your person is a little square in this very blocky, low res fantasy kingdom. And you've got three castles, right? The gold, the black, and the white. And you got to go and find their, find their keys to open up the castles to get other items you need. And ultimately you need to get in the black castle, find a chalice and bring it back to the gold castle, get it inside the gold castle. And then boom, you win. Along the way, you're menaced by three dragons, a yellow dragon, a slightly faster moving green dragon, and a very fast moving red dragon. And there's a sword you can find to kill them all, but you never know where the sword is. And on the higher levels of the, of the game's difficulty, there's a bat flying around that's always just popping up at random. And he may be carrying an item, he may not be, but he usually comes to mug you of the item you've got on hand. So you may be having a sword walk around trying to find this dragon to kill it, and the bat comes by, it's like, nice sword, I think I'll take it. Yoink, and then it's gone, right? And then, and then you're, you're dead in the water again. So, you know, for me, it really got me thinking hard about game design. I was fascinated by just how the, the world unfolded. I started playing this right around the time I started getting aware of Dungeons and Dragons. And so this game and my initial D&D experience kind of dovetailed a little bit. But my moment of truth with this game is that it was one of the very first, if not the first, that had an Easter egg built into it. And so the trick was, if you went to the Black Castle and if you got this, this bridge item, and you dropped it in a certain room, you can get to another part of the maze you couldn't normally get to, and there's an invisible like, pixel there. You could pick it up. And then if you moved to this other part of the game near the Yellow Castle and dropped it by this, like, you know, this wall, kind of denoted the edge of the, the game, and if you came back and you put two more items in that area, the wall became permeable. And you could actually pass through and go to a secret room where the creator of the game, Wade Robinette, signed the game, created by Wade Robinette. At a time when programmers did not get a chance to sign their game. So the fact that he did it was just this little thing. It's a cool, but if you could do this, this is like, holy moly, you guys, this is like the lost ark. This is like, you guys, there's a dot, there's a secret room and adventure. And when I heard about this, there was all kinds of rumors as to what's in the secret room. There's a wizard who grants you wishes. There's a fourth dragon. There's another game. There's like all kinds of stuff. And you had no way of verifying any of it because there's no internet. There's no nothing, right? For months and months i tried to find this this magic dot i just couldn't do it i just you know i was told by different people here's what i think you got to do and i just couldn't make it happen so i abandoned it right and i i was like well i guess you know i just won't get the magic dot and years and years later i came back to adventure i was actually playing it on my laptop through it through an emulator right i was like oh i'm gonna fire up adventure like whenever i get my hands on any kind of atari 2600 experience the first game i fire up is adventure right <laughs> just oh, yeah. jump, right it's just right off the bat and i was like okay you know what i'm gonna get that that dot and you know, i looked it up where to find it and okay and by the numbers i went picked up the dot <gasps> i heard the little bleep, you know said you pick something up I'm like oh man here it is and i was doing everything i needed to do and, you know, at this point, we're talking, this is like 2008, 2007. It's a long time after, you know, Adventure had come out. I'm a grown man, like on the train or on the ride home, you know, just doing this thing. And I'm getting everything set up. I'm getting ready to cross the path over. And like my hands were shaking. I could feel my pulse like pounding in my chest. My face was flushed. I was so excited like I felt as if I was the first person in the world discovering this on behalf of the whole planet. Like that's how it felt, even though I knew at this point it was way common knowledge, you know, but I crossed the wall, I get there and there's the room waiting for me. Right. And I just sat there staring at that text, that glowing text. I was so excited and so enthralled. It was one of those things where I had ticked off kind of a bucket item, but I had this really weird feeling of like, even though adventure is a solo game, I felt a deep sense of connection with other video gamers in that moment. It wasn't like I was connected to the internet or anything like that. I had finally done this thing that so many other people had done, and I was now part of a shared experience that had been talked about in lore for decades, and I had not been part of it. And now I finally got to join the lore. And it's funny because not long after that, I think is when I, I finally read Ernst Klein's Ready Player One. Uh-huh, I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Okay, you knew I was going there. And, and for those of you who haven't read it, that movie is a great big sloppy love letter to precisely the kind of Gen X geek to whom this podcast is run by and is aimed at. There's a whole section of the book talking about the adventure Easter egg, you know? And when I read that, I, I loved the scene for what it was, but also went back to my own moment and it made me realize that 
that experience wasn't just in my head that there really is this collective thing. Like these games have a way of bringing people together in strange ways. And I felt this weird kinship. We're all in this together, even though we're all off playing on our own. I thought that was a neat thing. It is a neat thing. You know, it's, it's kind of like joining a club almost like I, you know, I have a similar moment of truth with the arcade version of Mr. Do and finally getting, you know, the diamond. And, and you know, the, the, again, it's one of those things like, you know, a ton of lore and, you know, this is pre-internet. So, you know, the way <laughs> for that lore to pass was kid to kid. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, reading it off some chat room somewhere. Uh, you had to put effort into sports. Or in Nintendo power. Yeah. So, <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it is, I, I think it's got a lot more value in that pre-internet day where, yeah. you know, where it had to pass that way. But uh, but before we get too much farther, Chris, I'd love to get into your moment of truth, because uh, yours is about a game that, um, if, Atar- if, if Adventure is my favorite, the one you're mentioning is uh, probably my second. So please take it away. I got my 2600 Christmas of 1979. I was just about to turn nine years old and... That was the year after it had released. So I'd been playing it at a friend's house on the regular for a year. And it was all I wanted. My parents were separated at the time. I was living with my grandmother and my mom. And I, I come down and, and there's a 2600. And bah, wow. You know, it was, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I knew we were poor. <laughs> and for the longest time, you know, I never had a lot of cartridges. Mine came with combat. Uh, you know, I got Pac-Man and some of the others I had joust. But I stuck with the 2600. I was still playing the 2600 when I turned 16 in 1987. I had the peripheral that we played Phaser Patrol. Um, mm. God, I love Phaser Patrol. God, I love that game. Uh, <laughs> I had uh, this beautiful joystick made by Amiga that fit into the palm of your hand. It was called a power stick. And it fit just in the palm of your hand, like a chocolate bar, a bar of soap. And it had like a hemispherical housing and like a a one and a half inch tall joystick and two fire buttons. You could activate one with your thumb, one with your forefinger. It It was ambidextrous. My God, this joystick is my favorite peripheral of all time. It was phenomenal. The game I'm talking about is Yar's Revenge. And so good. It has, without a doubt, in my mind anyway, the greatest cover art of any Atari game ever. Yes. Yes. I I think it's worth actually pausing to (laughs) talk about it. And we haven't even talked about a cover art, and that's great because there's some wonderful... So, yeah, so the Atari, the, the whole Atari line has probably some of the greatest cover art for those games. I mean, there, oh, there's a book you should check out called The Art of Atari by Tim Lapatino. It's this beautiful just gallery of concept art and finished pieces for all those magnificent paintings that grace the covers of the games, and it looks so good. And, Chris, I completely agree with you. The cover for Yard's Revenge is just straight fire and not only that the instruction manual is a little comic book it tells a story by one of my favorite artists by a guy named frank scirocco who would go on to do the alien legion comic for epic comics <laughs> no way yeah 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 that's frank that's, Scirocco. Awesome. that's frank scirocco's work and he would go on to do like a lot of like side panel artwork for other other video games as well you know, like like stand-up arcade games but he did the the yards revenge comic book i read that comic like so many so many times it was so cool that comic was introduced, like, you know, in later pressings of the game, as it were. It, it is the biggest selling Atari game ever that was not licensed. It's called Yar's Revenge because the head of Atari at the time's first name was Ray. And it was turned upside down. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> they could get away with this stuff back then. <laughs> right. It, this was a big game. But this guy, you know, it, this was such a success that they came to him and said, hey, we need you to do E.T. for us in five weeks. And, and that's what caused the downfall of the video game industry. And wow, that kind of sucks. That's a, that's, a great, that's a great interview with him I saw 
where he was like, you know, years later and talking, he's like, yeah, I may have been a little full of myself coming off your revenge. And he said, the one thing he regretted the most was this line that got quoted where he's talking like newspapers and he goes, keep in mind, this is for E.T., the movie that was like the global phenomenon at the time. And he's like, this is the game that's going to make E.T. famous. <laughs> wow. Like, you're, just, you're just begging Zeus to hit you with a thunderbolt on that one. Like, come on, old man, what you got? You know? That is some video game developer level hubris right there. I will say though that you know the art on some of these um, really really was fantastic. You should see the basic math one. But the um, uh, I think I think my favorite was Warlords. It was my favorite. Warlords, Warlords. Good. Warlords. Yeah, that's the one that comes to mind. It was so good. The game was awesome. The games bears no resemblance to the game art <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, none of them do. <laughs> none of them do. But yeah, the, the Warlords art was fantastic. So, Chris, can you just real quick describe Yara's Revenge as a game? Because that, for an Atari game, I think there's actually a lot going on there. It was pretty complicated as far as a, a yeah. game goes. It's, it's a really interesting game. You know, like all Atari games, it's a joystick and a button. And you play a Yar, a little fly guy who's just flying around a single screen. Single screen games are not a thing anymore. We don't see those. Back then, they were more or less standard. Frogger is a single screen game. The, the trucks change, the logs change and whatnot, but that's, it's all contained. You play this fly guy and uh, you have the ability to shoot little bullets out of your mouth that can affect the shield that is being hidden behind by your enemy, the Colite. And there is a zone in the middle of the screen that is, it looks like static. There you are you are safe from the slow bullet that chases you all the time, and you're safe from your own shots. But if the colite changes, as he does, uh, and, and becomes the swirl, you are not safe. At the beginning of the game, when the colite changes, it's rear, 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 rear. You get lots of, of warning. As you progress, it becomes faster and faster. This game is a Zen experience. You charge your main weapon mostly by moving on the screen rather than doing anything else. You have to eat a bit of the shield or touch the colite. And then you get a shot from your weapon, which is aimed at you. So you have to fly in front of your enemy, the colite, and, and try to anticipate where he's going to be and, and fire the weapon and, and get it through the shield. It, it's, it's challenging, but there is such a flow to this game that you can play forever. You know, like, like, like Tom said, with flipping Defender, once you were there, once you got it, you could play forever. And I did play this game forever. I probably bought it in 1983, you know, when it was no longer $50 or $40 or whatever. I was still playing it at the beginning of 1987. I had switched over to Apple II gaming mostly, but... My Atari 2600 stayed plugged in for all that time. Part of the reason for it was Yara's Revenge. A few others, you know, uh, the Star Wars port, mm. the Star Wars arcade game port yeah. was phenomenal, actually. You know, for, for the day, that, that was a, a astonishing piece of technology. Yeah. But uh, Yara's Revenge, it doesn't die. You know, you can just come right back to it and it's still fun. It, it's a magical little design, I think. I, I have to agree. I have to agree. Tom? I, no, I, I played it, you know, emulated just the, even a few days ago, just because I, I remember exactly what you're talking about, Chris, getting into a rhythm with that game. And it's, it, it's kind of a, uh, like, it came back to me quickly, <laughs> which, which I, you know, but I think that's just testament to the number of hours that I put in on Yard's Revenge. It was so great. I just loved how quickly that game came back to me after, like, I hadn't played it in close to 30 years i would imagine yeah, yeah. and it's right there it's right there at your fingertips yeah. yep. totally agree yeah before we get to the end of the show i, I do want to stop and have it just a quick shout out slash speed round if i could say i noticed that all the games that we had mentioned were either ports of arcade games or they were atari originals but you know there was another kid in the room by the way of activision and activision made some great freaking games in fact i mean there are four atari programmers who are like forget this and they left and they just created their own you know they're they're considered like the fantastic four i think is what they called them in atari when they lost them that was a really big blow for them to create their own software shop to create these great game after great game for the 2600 
real quick, you know, I'd love to f- hear what everybody's favorite Activision games may have been because that was like the second Atari and you really can't talk about this without giving due credit to at least Activision, if not in Magic and, and the other third-party guys out there. So, so Chris, we'll start with you. What, what was your favorite Activision game, would you say? River Raid. Huh. You, took the one. It. you took mine. <laughs> Sorry, but I, but I left a really good one on the table. You did, you did, you did. You know what? You know, so River Raid's a great game, very hard. But you know, people talk about how awesome it was and is awesome. What I don't think gets called out a lot is that that was one of, one of the very first procedurally generated games. Like it was never the same game. It was never actually the same game twice. That. Yeah, it was procedurally generated, which is I think one of the reasons why it was so much fun. I mean, I think as you played, if you died and you reset you're in the same zone but like if you turn the machine off and on again it would be a different game that too was uh that was carol shaw at activision she was like an mvp over there and that i think was the one game that she did on her own and it was just so fantastic i loved that game like it, it got so fast paced after a while and having to slow down you know through the fuel yeah. thing Oh my God, I love that game so much. <laughs> yeah, slowing down for the fuel was like a big a big deal. Like, ah, you know. And the rivers got skinnier and skinnier. Skinnier, skinnier. Oh, yeah. Man. Joe, uh, Joe, do you have a favorite Activision game? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, you know, Pitfall was fun. That Ghost, they had a Ghostbusters version. That was fun. But my brother and I, I remember us playing a ton, a metric ton of fishing derby. Fishing derby, we played and played sitting on the dock and you tried to make the different depths to catch the fish. We played that for hours. No lie. Fishing Derby was an objectively great game. It was a fun game. And I just saw I just saw a meme today that was basically like, is your video game a good game? And it starts off like, does it have a fishing mini game? Yes, it's a good game. No, it's a bad game. <laughs> it's like the fishing lives, man. But no, Fishing Derby was a great game. It for, I mean, it was the simplest thing, but it yeah. was just, it, we were very competitive about it. And like, you had to try to get lower to get the bigger fish. And yeah. it came, you know, it's just, it was awesome. Yeah. Um, I was a big fan of Pitfall, although I have kind of a tainted memory with Pitfall because around the same time when I, I came back to the 2600 after many, many, many years, and I did the whole thing with Adventure. I was just playing all the games I remember. And I remember I fired up, I was playing Pitfall. And granted, I was playing it on a laptop. So my controls were a keyboard, right? So I had probably finer degree of control there than I would have had over the, the joystick. But I was like, all right, let's just do this. My fine motor control as far as video game playing was a bit more refined then as it was when I was 11 years old or whatever it was. And so I just smoked Pitfall. I actually like beat the whole, <laughs> I beat the whole thing like the first time playing through with time to spare. And I'm like, well, that was easy. And I just felt so deflated. I'm like, man, I remember this game was invincible. Like I just can't, it would just, it would just devour me. I never um, beat it on the 2600. Putting a physical cartridge in, playing with the stick. No, I never even came close. But on the on a computer, actually, I blew through it. And I was like, well, that's okay. But for me, the one Activision game that I come back to is Mega Mania, which oh, was this like- great game. It is. And it was like this cool like Space Invaders, Galaxian kind of thing where it's like, you're shooting from below. You can kind of steer your bullets and guys above are like flying all kinds of weird, wacky patterns. And that was a great game, but also that was one of the few games, that was the only game where I actually got a high score high enough to justify getting one of those Activision like service patches for the game. Like they had Activision had those like special sew on iron on type patches for your jean jacket or whatever that like it was if you got like a certain high score you can get these and these patches are like they were hard to come by and oh, gold you had to take a polaroid of your screen yeah <laughs> and i was and i did this at a, at a neighbor's house and i just had no camera with me and i begged her the mom of the house if i could use a camera she's like yeah no because polaroid you know film was expensive and she just did <laughs> not get the social currency i was going to get if i could score a mega maniac patch right and she ultimately, you know, said, no, you can't. And I had to, I watched in, in just complete helplessness as she turned the TV off because it was time to go to bed. I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> my one shot at greatness gone. <laughs> and it's like you said before, Bill, it's like once you shut it off, it's gone. It's gone. Get it back. There's no uh, you. There's no bring that back. You, <laughs> you, no, 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 no. So yeah, I think what's important when we talk Activision, do tip your cap to Decathlon, which was the joystick destroyer of all time. Oh my god! Um, and Presage <laughs> playing winter games and summer games on the Commodore, which we went through more uh, joysticks that way than uh, anyway. But yeah, um, if we're talking competitors too. Like we didn't even mention Intellivision. Intellivision was 
the other dopey competitor that that Atari had. <laughs> Intellivision right. was indicted in where I was living because. <laughs> And, and Tom, you might be able to appreciate this. Uh, when you were growing up, there was a there, there was a New York Channel Eleven WPIX. Yeah. That was a little, all right, so you know, picks, right? So during like the, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. During the during the, right, during the afternoon cartoon shows, yeah, this is like a little like interstitial thing where it's like, hey, it's like kind of like a radio program, but like, okay, you're gonna call in, and there was like there's an Intellivision game, like like a space shooting game, and if you said picks into the, the microphone, then the other guy, the guy at the TV station would hit the button and you're basically trying to play the game over the phone for prizes, right? And every day I'm like, okay, I just want to watch some more Tom and Jerry. Instead, I've got some idiotic eight-year-old just going, picks, picks, picks in the screen and hitting nothing at all. Yeah. And like, it just made me so furious. Like these kids suck at these games. They're in the way of my cartoons. They all sound stupid. And or, just, or you'd get the kid who jumped on the phone and was like, picks, 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 I remember a mom got it one time. She's like, picks, 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 picks. I'm like, oh, come on, man. You're just cheating. <laughs> but, but it made me hate the Intellivision forever, even oh. though it looked like it was a great game. It looked like it was more advanced than 2600. The games looked cool. But I was like, no, <laughs> never, ever. It right. super was more advanced. For, for, yeah. uh, Dude, they had a Lord of the Rings game. They had Dungeons AD and D games. Yeah, they also they had, had the little yeah. circular controllers. You had the press. No, I'm not going. Uh, Activision games. I am going with Enduro, so I can tell my Activision story. Do it. <laughs> remember Enduro? Yes, Enduro was great. It's like a better night driver. So yes. Like, my uh, my dad used to take me to a store near us, TSS, Times Square stores, long, long closed, like one of those retail changes closed a long time ago, but they had the best toy department in this store. And along uh, one of the side walls, they had its uh, display case set up and they had Atari, they had Intellivision, they had ColecoVision and just like a wall of games behind the clerk. You know, dad would just drop me off in the toy department, go do his shopping elsewhere in the store and come back for me. Well, this one time he dropped me off, you know, I see this guy playing a game I've never seen before. And I'm like, this kind of looks like Night Driver, but it's definitely a lot more detailed. And what happens is it's a guy from Activision who's showing the clerk some of the new games that are about to come out. And I just happened to blunder into the store at this time. So you want to talk about street cred. Oh. I sat there and I, I'm like, what is this game? And he's like, uh, and I'm like, I don't recognize it. And he's like, that's because it's not out yet. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. So he went through like Enduro and a couple of others. And, and Keystone Capers was another one that I remember he, he sort of like showed demoed to the guy and i'm the only kid in the store who's getting this and like if i were if i had a notebook i would have been oh, <laughs> if I had a camera i would have oh. been sniffing like, oh. and you know i walked into school the next day and i told everybody about these games that were coming out and they're like yeah yeah i suppose you're full of crap blah 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 until <laughs> the games came out and you can imagine the free cred that i got yeah. from the, <laughs> the activision games that were that's so fantastic. Well, speak, speaking of street cred, I need, to, I need to out you for a second. Tom knows the guy who programmed the Phoenix cartridge. Oh, yeah, that's right. John Mrazek. Uh, yeah. He's a good Damn. industry friend. Uh, one of the good guys in the digital advertising business. And very early in, he ran an ad serving company that I did uh, business with back in the day. But, I mean, Billy, I'll, I'll start the story. You got to finish it. Um, it, it was a, a just, you know, serendipitous Facebook thread where we're talking about Atari. And, you know, uh, John just mentions that he coded this thing. He coded a game. And we're like, what? It was like, you know, the, the needle scratches on the rear. What? Everybody's kind of <laughs> yeah, like, wait, the what? went bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like in anime, when a male character sees a really beautiful girl, like often blood will come gushing out of his nose. That's kind of what I ha happened to me when Ray's like, "Oh yeah, like I did this game." I'm like, Bleh! like I think I may have actually spit took like in the in my room. Like what the? And I was like, I just completely fell apart and had this total fanboy moment. I'm like I like, I will buy you a beer the next time we get together. Like sir, like that is like I love that game. It's freaking awesome. And he was like so super cool about it. And he goes, "Oh," and he messaged me and and, and he's like, he's like, "Oh, no, I really appreciate that. Thanks so much." I'm like, "No, man. Like this is like." Really, these games meant a lot to me, and and I really, you know, it's it's it was a great game. It's a, a, the Fe the Phoenix port 
It's an objectively great game. It's really, really awesome. And now we're friends uh, on Facebook, which is super cool. But then, like, you know, cut to a couple weeks later, and I get this odd package in the mail. And I'm like, well, what could this be? And I don't get a lot of mail. And I open it up. And John had actually had extra copies of the cartridge, like, unopened. And he actually, like, got one out of his attic and sent it to me with this little note. And I'm like what <laughs> like it's still in my it's i that is like one of my greatest treasures like that's in like my secret stash of the stuff bill really loves like the the box of things i'll run to go get in a fire it's in that box you know <laughs> i was like i can't believe i got this you know this is from the maker that cred doesn't go away like this is a game that came out 40 years ago or 38 years ago or whatever and it's like it still matters to me like the guy who made it, i got to talk with him and interact with them that, that means a lot to me i think it's really super cool i think it's also important to, to recognize that so many of these games were created and entirely created by one person. And yeah. that's just that's just sort of essentially lost to video games at this point. Well, at the time, the scope of the game was something that one person could create. Also, the industry was figuring itself out. So you still had this like weird crossover period where like the artists kind of could still run the roost a little bit. It was also mixed up, you know, and you had... Uh, just these weird scenarios where you have a designers kind of go and do their thing. And it was just not, it's, it's so antipodal to the what. suits were just providing the beer at this point. They, yeah. they pretty much were, yeah. Nolan Bushnell, I'm pretty convinced, just owned a beer truck. And that's all he really did. Just sort of, you know, this, this weird place where art and commerce kind of, you know, coexisted in a way in which they really kind of dealt with video, video games now because the casts are so huge. The amount of money at risk is so huge. The whole proposition going into building the games is so different. It creates a different kind of entertainment. I'm not saying bad or worse, it's just, it's, it's different. You see that in a variety of these art forms. I mean, early cinema was like that. Early comic books were like that. Yeah. Early television was like that. I mean, yeah. once it starts to become a, a, a commercially viable enterprise, the artistry takes a backseat to the, the commercial. It does. You, know, you see all these guys, especially in the, uh, you know, go back and watch that documentary series on Netflix. You know, you see a lot of the guys who did a lot of the early games opening up sketchbooks and then showing how the drawings they did of the different aliens and stuff like how they you know put them into you know sprites and, and everything that w eventually went into the game it's it's really fascinating how like one person could have done all that back then you know, and known the programming to to be able to yeah. do it and all the little tricks and little hacks you had to do to get this stuff to run on a system that's as limited as 2600 is I mean, you're dealing with a lot of little programming hacks you have to do in order to just get, you know, a game to run the way you want it to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of ingenuity in the programming, but also like when you talk about things like River Raid and Yard's Revenge, and these are games where the, there is a much more direct pipeline between the concept of the game and the execution of the game. And you, it required people who had to think both as creators and, and as engineers as well. And I imagine there's, there's that in the modern industry to some degree, uh, certainly. I wouldn't know. I don't create video games for a living. Uh, but I have a great respect for this for the folks who could, you know, kind of ideate something and then just figure out, okay, how do I translate this into code? That there's a, a special kind of magic in that, I think. And I know it's, it's easy to get wrapped up in the haze of nostalgia when you talk about an old platform like the 2600. And so, you know, I always try to keep in mind, you know, not to give this more credit than it's due just because, you know, it, it occupies a certain part in my life. But there are unique aspects to this that I think are worth remembering and, and worth taking taking a lot of value out of. And I think one of the neat things about it was just how one person could make a game that could then reach the lives of millions of people. You know, Wade Robinette made a game that supercharged the imaginations of millions of kids. And, and I was one of them. You're here. And that put me on a path towards writing, towards game design, towards doing all these things that, you know, helped me get in touch with some really cool people, helped me do some really wonderful things helped me develop my craft in a way that ended up impacting other people's lives too. And it's neat. And, and, you know, these things have a funny way of paying themselves forward. But when you look at the Atari age, it was just this really interesting constellation of brilliant figures who could do their thing and then see this dream kind of manifest itself in the real world. That just doesn't happen all that often. It requires a certain set of circumstances to make it possible. The Atari age didn't last long. It just lasted long enough to change the world. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. 
For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.